Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Chris, good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much. Are you back in London? Well, I'm in Cambridge. Yeah, yeah, I'm back now. In, oh, you're back in the UK. The That's what I meant. It was in Cape Town last week, which was very agreeable in comparison. Well, I don't know if you saw the article about you in the Sunday Times. Everybody's been asking me uh, about it and uh, they're covering your, your, they reported on your visit here. And I had many people asking me, so you've been lying to us all along. He's not based in the UK. He is in South Africa. I thought, well, he does travel, you know. Uh, so you were in Cape Town. Oh, don't let me like- out sometimes. <laughs> not, not very often, but don't let me out sometimes. Okay. So um, here we are, uh, Chris. Everybody's talking about this here in South Africa. Uh, the headlines in newspapers um, are about our water shortage, that we're facing a water crisis in South Africa. I mean, what is the science behind uh, the earth and water? Well, one of the really big questions, Reedy, is well, how did the earth come by its water in the first place? Because the planet's been here more than four and a half billion years. That's roughly the time when it began to form. And we, we know we've got a lot of water here on Earth now. There's about 1.3 billion cubic kilometres of the stuff swishing around in the ocean, seas and rivers. But Where did that water come from? The favoured theory is that it all landed here from um, asteroid and comet impacts well after the time that the Earth had formed. But what we don't know is how much water formed with the Earth in the first place. But now we have a new insight because there's a very exciting paper. It's in Science, the journal this week, by a lady called Lydia Hallis. She's from the University of Glasgow. And what she has managed to do is to find samples of the Earth's earliest water. In other words, water that was here over four and a half billion years ago, as our planet was forming. Now, you can't go to rocks on the surface Mm -hmm. of the Earth for this because we have plate tectonics. In other words, the Earth's crust is moving around all the time and it's being made all the time and it's being consumed or broken down and taken back inside the Earth all the time. So there's no rock on Earth which is more than about 4.1 billion years old that might have some samples of water for you to analyse. So what she did was to say, well, if we can't look at the surface we'll have to look inside. And they went to a number of hotspots. Hawaii was one of them. Mm. And these hotspots are notable and remarkable because they bring magma, molten rock, from deep inside the Earth, a region called the mantle, and they bring it to the surface and deposit it. So those rocks, although they will have cooled and can now be analysed, are material that's pristine from the time at which the Earth was forming. And what Lydia Hallis did was to compare the chemical makeup of the water that's on the surface of the earth in the oceans with the chemical makeup of the water that's coming from inside the earth what do i mean by chemical makeup Mm -hmm. well hydrogen comes in a number of different forms we call them isotopes some are heavier than others and the ratio of the heavier and lighter forms forms a unique fingerprint corresponding to the chemistry of the water here and that's how we know that asteroids probably brought us some water from space and contributed to our oceans because the fingerprint of these isotopes is the same in the oceans as it is in asteroids. But if you look at this water from samples of rock from deep inside the Earth, the fingerprint is completely different. 
her conclusion mm -hmm. is that what she's looking at in these rocks is the water that formed with the Earth in the first place when the Earth was accreting from particles of gas and dust in this big disk that was around what was going to become our star, our sun. And so, in other words, the conclusion from this is that, in fact, when the Earth first formed, there was a lot of water here. Mm. It didn't all come subsequently. There was a lot of water that helped to form the early Earth. And why this is important isn't just about informing our own planet. It also gives us insights into what the composition of our planetary neighbours is and also the composition of disks that give rise to planets in systems a bit like our own in future. Hold on, hold on. That, that last part, um, uh, Chris, are you suggesting that uh, we can infer then that other rocky planets as, w as well are as wet as, as, as the Earth, basically? Yes, that's her conclusion, that uh, the water isn't going to be unique to the Earth. And in fact, we do know that there's quite a lot of water still on Mars. We don't exactly know why Mars lost its magnetic field four billion years ago or so, and this is why Mars has dried out. But Mars certainly has evidence of having had a lot of water in the past, and this would at least partly explain why there's a lot of subsurface water still detectable on Mars today. Let's go th straight to the lines then on 021-446-0567, David and Cyril Dean, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I have a very strange question, and I need you to perhaps improvise on this one. If the dinosaurs had not been wiped out, what effect this would have had on evolution of life on Earth? Hi, David. Well, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation because we are where we are. But most people assume that the dinosaurs disappeared and this meant that mammals came along. In fact, if you look at the fossil record, mammals, of which we are one type, were already there for a long time. The ancestors of mammals are a couple of hundred million years old and the dinosaurs didn't disappear until 60 million years old. And so we know for a fact that mammals did exist at the time of the dinosaurs, but because of the dominance of the dinosaurs, they were one small part of life on Earth, and it was after the dinosaurs disappeared that it opened up a niche or an opportunity for mammals. Also, the climate changed. Mm -hmm. We know that there was this big impactor from space, and this, together with supervolcanoes and other geological phenomena that were going on, favoured mammals over dinosaurs, and that's why the pecking order shifted. But had the dinosaurs carried on? Well, dinosaurs have sort of carried on because we still have crocodiles, and crocodiles are more than 300 million years old. They predate the dinosaurs, in fact, in terms of their evolution, and they're still here, and they're pretty fearsome. So what I can say is that the Earth would not have been such a nice place to live if dinosaurs were still knocking around today. And anyone who's seen Jurassic World will probably agree with me. Let's go to... <laughs> let's go to... Uh, was it, is it Wasim? Wasim in Benoni. Good morning to you. Hi, Reedy. Hi, Chris. Mm. Hi, Wasim. Uh, I'd just like to know, um, I have some rheumatoid arthritis. I just want to know, does the disease ever burn out or is it lifelong? <laughs> Hello, Wasim. Yeah. Sorry to hear about yeah. that. Let's first explain to people what rheumatoid arthritis is. Arthritis tells you this is inflammation in joints. The rheumatoid bit refers to it being an immune response. For some reason, we don't know why, the immune system attacks something in the joints of people who have rheumatoid arthritis. It doesn't go for every joint in the body. There are certain joints that seem to be preferentially affected by the disease. Hands are a classic example. Toes as well. The neck is also commonly affected. And the spine. When the inflammation goes into the joint, it damages the so-called articular surfaces where the bones slide over each other in the joint, and that damage leads to joint stiffening, it leads to damage to the 
ends of the bones and ultimately deformity of the joints. So you end up with knobbly bits on the sides of the joints, the joints don't work properly and they become stiff and painful. Now because the immune system is behind this and because the thing the immune system is, t- is attacking is part of your own body and is therefore always there, the body is always presenting that target, then often the course is a relentless one. People find they get the disease continuing. It does nonetheless come in peaks and troughs and in some people it peaks for a while and, and then it remits and goes away and then it comes back and then it goes away. Added to that, you can control the disease with various drugs, which are called disease-modifying drugs, and to damp things down. The bottom line is that everyone is different, and some people do find that they get it for a while and then it will remit or go away. Other people find it pursues a course relentlessly and doesn't go away. What does appear to be the case, though, is that in some people, with, and this is true for most of these autoimmune diseases, if you have some other kind of viral infection or something which winds up your immune system then sometimes it can also make the disease a bit worse for a while because it stimulates the production of more of the class of cells in the immune system that seem to be responsible for causing the rheumatoid arthritis. And there are certainly cases of people who have other autoimmune conditions where they say if they get a virus infection, their other disease tends to get worse for a while as well. And we think that's because of this so-called non-specific priming of the immune system. So it depends on every individual being different. Some people it will just disappear, other people it won't, and it does need some kind of disease-modifying treatment and control of the disease with some drugs. But there are some reasonable ways to control rheumatoid arthritis these days. Thank you so much, Wasim, and good luck to you. Uh, We have a very interesting question about uh, animals and blood type. We will get to that after the break. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Give us a call on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702 and we are satisfying your curiosity about the world in which we live. Uh, here's that question from Sean. Do animals have blood types like humans or one blood type? Hi, Sean. The answer is animals have blood groups just like we do. What do we mean by blood groups? Well, in humans, we have three defined blood groups, group A, group B and group AB, plus another one called group O. So four in total, but three caused by the technique I'm going to explain, which is what is a blood group? Well, on our blood cells, there are chemical markers, they're sugar molecules, and they stick out from the cell surface and the immune system can recognise them. Those are called blood group antigens. And you have a gene that gives you A markers, you have a different gene that gives you B markers. Because you inherit one gene from your mother and one gene from your father, you can have group A only on the cell, because you have two copies of the A gene. You can have AB because you have one A and one B. Or you can have neither A nor B genes, so you can have group O. And that's how you get group A, group B, group AB, or group O. It's exactly the same for animals, although those chemical markers are different. So although they have the same sorts of classification, cats have group A and group B like we do, um, but the markers will be different. You couldn't take cat blood and put it into a human because there would be a reaction. Dogs actually have seven blood groups, as do sheep. So, mm. yes, they have blood groups, but they're not the same blood groups as us, but the biochemistry and the immunology of it is exactly the same. Thank you for that question, Sean. I, it never crossed my mind. So fascinating, and I love watching Nature Wild. I'll be looking at it with a different eye and listening with a different ear. Okay, let's go to uh, Marilyn in four ways. Hi. Hello. Yes, Marilyn, welcome. Uh, thanks, Reedy. Um, good morning, Chris. I have, you know, in terms of our uh, water crisis here in South Africa, um, I was thinking of being proactive 
Um, Because I don't want to come home one day and find I have no water, but the chances of that happening is um, pretty um, high. And I was thinking of storing water um, in a couple of uh, 20-litre containers for use in case of emergency. Now, my question is... um, what if I bought bottled water? What is the shelf life? Secondly, um, if I tap bottled water myself, how do I prevent it from becoming contaminated? Okay. Okay. Well, the bottom line is that water is water, and the story we started the program with today shows that there's water here on Earth that's 4.5 billion years old for definite. Uh, that's a long shelf life. So water in and of itself won't go off, but when you have a bottle of water, then what you might also have in your water is some food in the form of proteins and other particles and some bugs that will eat the food, bacteria and fungi. So it's possible that water can go off in the sense that you can end up with the contamination of the water by a thriving colony of microbes. Most of them are going to be completely harmless to you because they're just environmental microbes and they're not capable of causing disease in a human. But... You could end up with some pathogens in there, and so it's important to be careful uh, with where you get your water from. If you really, really are worried, or you have a disease that means you might be susceptible to infection over and above somebody else, then you could always boil the water before you put it into the bottles. Bottles were clean when you put put the water in, and then while the water's still got steam coming out of the uh, cap at the top, which is pushing any any stuff out, it means that bacteria will find it hard to go in. Put the cap on at that point and, and then keep the water and you'll be fine. A lot of water to boil, though, 20 litres. Mm-hmm. The other thing you could do is there are some Steri-Tabs. You can buy these tablets which release a small amount of oh, an, yes. unoxidising chemical into the water and they render water safe for drinking under most circumstances. So if you were really worried about that, then you could always dump a couple of those in and under that circumstance, then the water should be fine for ages. What I can't comment on is what might be leaching out of the bottles into the water because what we're now aware of is that there are lots of chemicals that come out of the polymers in these drinking water bottles and things which might have an impact on your health. Um, we don't know yet, but there's, there's some evidence to suggest that some of these chemicals, they can behave a bit like hormones in the body and therefore they can affect people's health. Let's go to Lerato in Santon. Good morning, Lerato. Hi, Ruby. Thank you for taking my call. I want to know... Um can the ozone layer regenerate? And if so, at the rate that we're going, how long will it take for it to regenerate? And if not, why everybody cannot regenerate? Thank you. Lovely set okay. of questions there. Yeah. <laughs> um, First of all, what's the ozone layer? Well, this is a fairly thin veneer of ozone, which is three oxygen atoms stuck together high up in the atmosphere. Its effect is to strongly absorb ultraviolet rays. Ultraviolet comes from the sun along with visible light, but when it hits the earth, visible light goes straight through the ozone layer, but the wavelength or or shape of the waves, the size of the waves of ultraviolet are about the right size to hit ozone and be interrupted by it. So the earth has this protective shield of ozone around it so that that very damaging ultraviolet radiation can't get down to the planet's surface in in such such amounts as it's present normally, and that protects us all. Because ultraviolet has enough energy in it to damage your cells, damage your DNA, and therefore potentially introduce mutations and therefore cancers. The ozone layer got broken down because chemicals that were being released into the atmosphere including things called CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, they ended up concentrating high up in the atmosphere over the polar regions and particularly over the South Pole. And There are various reasons why they concentrate there. 
and those chlorofluorocarbons, when they get hit by sunlight, it splits the molecule apart and forms a very uh, reactive form of chlorine that then jumps onto ozone, attacks it and breaks down the ozone molecule. And so this led to the depletion of ozone over the South Pole and eventually a continent-sized hole opened up or a thinning in the ozone layer over the south of the planet, overlapping with Australia and South Africa. So therefore, people in those areas will feel and see a higher intensity of ultraviolet compared with people who live in the northern hemisphere or further north. Now, is this a permanent thing? No. Uh, we know that thanks to something called the Montreal Protocol, which happened in 1986, which is when scientists A, first spotted that there was a problem, and B, implemented quickly uh, an international strategy to stop the use of these chlorofluorocarbons in such amounts that were linked to the hole in the ozone layer, we now know that studies are showing that the hole has stopped growing and appears to be shrinking slightly. So the chemistry that put the ozone there is still going on, and so the ozone can regenerate itself, as long as there's no more chlorine of this type going into the atmosphere and concentrating up there, the hole should recover. But it was such a big hole, and there's so much of this chlorine-based CFC in the atmosphere already, and these molecules live for such a long time, they're mm. so stable, it's going to take a really long time for them to eventually be removed from the atmosphere and the ozone to settle down again. Thanks, Lerato. Uh, now, Maureen, I have a vested interest in your answer because uh, my husband was very shocked uh, that anyone can be bitten by mosquito as mosquitoes as badly as I have been I have mosquito bites every part of my body. Maureen in Linksfield, please ask your question. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, good morning. I just wanted to know, first of all, why are mosquitoes attracted to humans? I mean, obviously they need our blood, but they must land on lots of inanimate things other than humans. Um, so how do they find humans? Um, so that's the first part of the question. The second thing is that I know that products that are on the market here in South Africa, like Tabard, um, and I'm sure they've got similar things everywhere in the world. Um, what is it in those products that, uh, that mosquitoes don't like? First of all, and these are two excellent questions, because mosquitoes are the most dangerous animal on earth, because they directly cause uh, about 300 million cases of malaria, and that's just malaria, not taking into account all the other things that mosquitoes cause around the world every year. Why do they track down humans? Well, mosquitoes, and specifically female mosquitoes, in order to breed, are dependent on a high-protein meal. Because mosquitoes will normally eat sugar from fruit and things. When they're breeding, and the mosquito females are laying eggs, they need blood, because blood has a lot of protein in it. They've therefore evolved to have very good mechanisms for tracking down where we are. One of the ways they do that is that they're sensitive to carbon dioxide. Their antennae that stick out from their head are covered in nerve cells which are themselves covered in chemical receptors or docking stations that are very sensitive to carbon dioxide. They also have nerve cells that can detect so-called volatiles coming off your skin. We are continuously oozing a cocktail of chemistry, chemicals from all over our bodies all the time. And mosquitoes have evolved to detect some of these chemicals because they know these chemicals equal a mammal, which is something warm-blooded that they could bite. And so the mosquitoes swim or fly around and they're using their antennae to resolve when is the concentration of these chemicals getting higher.
and they know that if they follow the concentration gradient towards the source, they're going to find somebody who they could bite, or an animal that they could bite. They're also sensitive to warmth, so they can tell where, the, where a heat source is, so they can home in on the best place to bite you, because where blood vessels run closest to the surface of the skin, that's where their meal is, so they know how to track those down as well. So they've evolved to be very, very good at doing that. Anti-mosquitoes, or mosquito-repelling chemicals, they actually work because they produce a, a, an aroma of material which, when it binds onto the mosquito's antennae, seems to blind the mosquito to the other smells that are present in some way that we don't really understand. Drugs and chemicals like DEET, the way they work is they bind onto the antenna and they then stop the antenna responding to other chemicals or they stop the brain of the mosquito responding to the presence of other chemicals so effectively it can't see the wood for the trees anymore and it can't sniff you out. Thank you so much, Maureen. Time flies when we're having fun. We will see you again next week. Uh, Chris, have a lovely weekend. Looking forward to it. Thanks very much, Rudy. Bye-bye. See you soon. We'll Bye, everyone. podcast that conversation. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.